Welcome to the Partnership Economy. This podcast explores the power of partnerships through candid conversations with industry leaders. Join our hosts, Dave Yovano, CEO, and Todd Crawford, co-founder of Impact.com, as they unpack the future of partnerships as a lever for scale and an opportunity to put the consumer first. Welcome back to the Partnership Economy podcast. This is your host, Dave Yovano, and I'm thrilled to announce today's guest, Chloe Wen. Chloe is a Nashville-based creator and YouTuber who has been in the online space since 2015, sharing her everyday life, how-tos, and must-have products with her audience. What started as a passion and a hobby quickly became a full-time job, and as the industry has rapidly grown and changed, she's evolved with it, amassing hundreds of thousands of followers across her various social media platforms. Chloe has done an excellent job of maintaining a long-term vision and a positive reputation while scaling her brand and her content. In this episode, Chloe discusses how she became a successful content creator, how to effectively collaborate with brands, and her thoughts on adjusting your strategy for each social media platform. I highly recommend listening to this episode if you are a brand looking to work with creators or an aspiring creator yourself. Welcome back to the Partnership Economy Podcast. I'm excited to introduce this week's guest, Chloe Wen. We've been following Chloe's career as a content creator for the past few years. We enjoyed watching her build a highly engaged audience across various platforms like YouTube and Instagram. Welcome to the show, Chloe. How are you doing today? I am doing amazing. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. I'm really excited to talk about all things influencer industry, all things brand deals, and I'm just excited to be chatting with you again. Awesome. Wanted to set the stage with maybe how you got started as a creator. Like what inspired you to start creating content in the first place? And also while you're at it, at what point, where did you realize that you can make this a career? Yeah. So I started my Instagram in high school and I was posting a lot of artwork. I was trying to get commission work off of just using Instagram as a platform to post what I was creating, which was visual art at the time. And then as I got into college, I started doing photography and started posting a lot of my photo work on there. And around like 2014, I started working with some local brands around Nashville on shooting photos for their products. And then that kind of transitioned into me being in the photos. So at some point, those local brands I was shooting for not only wanted me to just take photos of their products, but they wanted me to be in the photos and to showcase them like how I use them. And so there was like a slow transition from me being behind the camera to being in front of the camera. And then it was around, I think it was maybe 2015 is when I got my first brand deal where a brand was like, we'll send you an outfit and we want you to post about it on your Instagram. And that was the first time that I had been paid to post. And so that was the first brand deal. I got paid $50 and it blew my mind. I, I was honestly like, are you serious? You're going to send me clothes. What? It's a college student. And you're going to pay me to just take a photo in the outfit and post on social media. It was like this whole new concept no one had really ever heard of. So it was just like a totally new space where brands were just starting to test the waters with sending product and having people like post about it. It was like not even an industry. There wasn't a term for it. So when they reached out to you, what what did you think? Was it a product that and a brand that kind of fit your image, uh, your style, like things that you're interested in? I've always loved clothing as well. So when 
a fashion brand reaches out to you and you're a college student making no money and they're like, we're going to send you an outfit and we're going to pay you. It's like the dream come true. And how big was your audience back then, would you say? Yeah, I think I had around maybe like 50 or 60,000 followers on Instagram. I wasn't on YouTube yet. During 2014, 2015, that's a pretty sizable audience. That was obviously before influencers were really a thing. And I had, like I said, always posted my artwork or I used to do cover songs. Like I have, I've gone through a lot of different phases with my Instagram. And I think just along the way I had built a following of people who were just interested in whatever type of art I was creating. Okay. So now you're on this track to getting some compensation for uh, the content that you're creating. That was an example of where a brand reached out to you. How did that start to evolve then? I would imagine at some point you started to reach out uh, to brands more proactively. Can you tell us a little bit about how that evolved for you? Yeah. So when I was doing some modeling in college, I started to reach out to brands just in Nashville. This was really before I was like, I want to be an influencer. This was more like, oh, like brands are willing to do some product trading for photo work. So that was still kind of when I was doing a lot of photography work. And then I took that idea and moved it into like posting. Once I started seeing that brands were willing to pay to post, I was like, there's got to be brands that are here in Nashville that I'm already like buying from that I really love that are smaller like I was at the time. And surely they would want an exchange for some photos that they can use. And then also for me to post on my blog and on my Instagram. And so I definitely started just like reaching out to as many people as I could. And I definitely aimed for brands that I knew that I could at least get a foot in with. So they were brands that were local or like I would find smaller brands online or like on Instagram and I would DM them and just be like, Hey, would you send me a necklace if I posted about it? And a lot of times they were like, sure. Like that sounds great. So it was a lot of just knocking down the doors and seeing who would, yeah, yeah, who would even answer. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I just had a message that I drafted up in my notes. I was like, I'm just going to copy and paste it and just see as many people as I can who are just interested in trying this out because it was so new. I feel like a lot of brands were either like, this sounds awesome. Why wouldn't we do this? Or they were like, that's crazy. Why would we ever, you know, give you a product to post on social media, you know? Yeah, it was just a lot of putting my name out there. And that was like something clicked where you realized that this could be a business, essentially. It sounds like at the beginning, then you were casting a pretty wide net, essentially, like meaning you'd work with anybody that would pay you because you, you felt like you're on a track for actually monetizing. Can you talk to us a little bit about how the type of types of deals that you accepted who you were pursuing in the early days and how that evolved to where you are now? Yeah, I think when I started, I was casting that really wide net. I was also a sophomore in college, like I said, making no money and just was so hungry for any opportunity that I could get my hands on. I honestly just loved working and I loved the business side of it. And so that was something that I was just really interested in trying to figure out. And so back then I was saying yes to literally anything. I was like, any brand that I can like, get in with and get a connection with, I would, I pretty much said yes to, but as I have grown my Instagram and then also I started a YouTube channel in 2017. So that has become a whole separate platform that I've grown over, I think like over 130,000 subscribers on there. Um, my Instagram, I think is that 140 something, but as I have grown those two separate audiences that kind of overlap, but 
I have been able to really diversify and start to hone in on things that I'm actually just really passionate about now. I feel really fortunate to have grown it to a place where I not only am relying on a brand to pay me, but I've built up a a pretty substantial affiliate side to my business as well, which really just compensates me to talk about things that I really love. And so that has given me a lot of flexibility in what I am able to say yes or no to. And I think around like 2015, as new and as crazy as brand deal sounded, affiliates were just as as wild. I don't think that was a really known term to a lot of everyday bloggers like me. I, I think there were things like ad rev where you could put an ad on your blog, but as far as selling products and getting a kickback for things like that on social media, that was so new. And so as that's evolved and now have, as more brands have jumped on affiliate platforms like Impact, I've been able to stabilize my business. And so now I am able to be a lot more choosy with the brand deals that I take on. Uh, maybe one more comparison. If you were to look at the brands that you're working with and, and how you worked with them back in 2015 timeframe, let's say, compared to now, were those relationships back then more like transactional, more short-term versus more longer-term now, I, I can imagine maybe? No, honestly, I think that it's stayed the same. It's To me, it's always been about the relationship with the brand. And I think that if you have a really good relationship with a brand and you're giving good work and it's on time and it's been well received by your audience, I don't think that those longer term relationships only happen when you're a bigger creator. I've been able to sustain relationships from the time that I was really small until now And it's not like when I was really small, they didn't, they only wanted to work with me once. I was able to give them really good content and maybe the deal itself looked a little bit different. I was delivering a lot more for a lot less. And I feel like just like any business, it's like you want to work with those people over and over again, who you've built relationship with. And so I don't necessarily think that it's necessarily if you're a small creator, you only get one-time deals. And if you're a big creator, you have these great relationships. I think it can work with both. Yeah. I'd go so far as to say, yeah, I think of you as an OG creator on a couple levels. One, I think you got started early, but also I think your mindset of focusing on quality over quantity, because there are a number of want to be creators, influencers, being that cheesy salesperson, clearly just promoting stuff, the churn and burn, one and done transactional sort of relationships, whether they're just picking up some affiliate links or they're doing a paid post sort of thing. It sounds like very early. So not only did you get started early on, but I think early on, it seems like you also adopted this mindset of playing more of the long game, essentially. Yeah, I think I've been able to do that because while I was starting out, I was doing a bunch of other jobs, just very transparently. I think that, you know, a lot of people might not have the luxury of just picking and choosing what they want. Some larger creators do. Sometimes you have to pay the bills and there's a deal that comes in that maybe you're not super excited about, but you have to take. I do realize that's like a real privilege that I'm in right now. But I do think that having that long-term vision for knowing that I really want to be able to sustain this. I really want to hold true to what I believe in. And so that did mean in the past years where this wasn't able to make enough money for me to live the lifestyle that I wanted. I did take a bunch of other super random jobs. I was part-time modeling. I was shooting for other influencers. I was selling clothes on the side, like for closet sales. I was just doing kind of a bunch of different things. And I think that allowed me to turn down some things that I wasn't super aligned with. And now it's afforded me the position to be able to 
have built a long-term career off of those past decisions. So it sounds like you would say that investment in quality is worth it in the long run. And that if you are treating it as a more transactional sort of career, it may be more short-lived. What I'm hearing you say is that might also affect the quality of your audience, your ability to retain that audience long-term. I definitely think that you should look five, 10 years ahead and just have a game plan of where you see yourself, where you want to be. And sometimes that means turning down things now because you have vision for the future that whatever this is doesn't align with those goals. And so, yeah, I do think that having an audience that can see your authenticity and can see that you're really trying to align yourself with brands that you're really excited about, they are more willing to to like stick with you for sure. Yeah. Turning things down. And I, I really do uh, appreciate your view of being, you, know, you feel like you, you're lucky or you're privileged to have choice. But I can imagine dealing with some brands, they would be like, say what? You're turning me down. I'm like, how do they react sometimes when you either choose not to reduce someone or, or you give an authentic review and it's not in the most positive light for the brand? How do they deal yeah. with that? Typically with a brand deal, I just won't at this point, I won't accept it if I don't believe in the product or it doesn't really align with what I want. I try to avoid even having to do a negative review. And I have actually accepted a brand deal where I've gotten the product and I've been like, actually, I don't like this. And I'll just come back to them and say, hey, I'm so sorry, but this didn't work for me. And I just would rather we table this. If you have something else that comes up, please let me know. Typically brands are- Rather than publicly shaming them, you're just giving them that yeah, I don't want to get on there and I'd rather communicate that to them directly and just say, hey, this doesn't really work. And the type of content that you publish, I mean, you have, let's just call it, I don't know, would you agree? Is it in the 300,000 range, let's say, of, of followers, subscribers across multiple platforms? Let's just say maybe it's in that range. I have to imagine that the content that you create, it's not just about brands, right? It's not all commerce content. You're publishing about your life as well. And that is a reason why people follow you and, and engage with your content. How do you divide that up? How do you choose what to post about just you as a person versus brands? What's that mix like for you? Yeah, I would say for both platforms, honestly, most of my content is not sponsored, especially YouTube. I think YouTube is probably 6% sponsored because I'm really choosy about my YouTube videos and what gets sponsored there. But... I don't know. I feel like there's a delicate balance with how many deals just because people are following you for you and throwing an ad in, even if it's something that you're passionate about, is still a disruption in their view of what you're doing through that day. So, you know, even if you're doing a day in my life on Instagram stories and you've posted your workout, your breakfast, your hair care, all of a sudden there's like a vitamin ad, even though you are taking vitamins, it's still an ad. And I think people can see that now at this point, that if it's an ad, it's an ad, even if it's something you believe in, it's an ad. So I think it's just important to keep note of how many ads you're putting out there a month. I will say some months are just more busy than others. I think a lot of times this work is really seasonal. And so there are some months where I'm posting four brand deals. So it's like once a week. And then there's some months where I'm posting eight because we're just in a really busy push for spring clothes or even during holiday. And so I think it just depends seasonally where we're at. But I do think that aligning the brand deals with your type of content 
kind of makes it easier to post more brand deals just because if I'm a fashion channel, which my YouTube channel is pretty fashion heavy and I would say my Instagram is pretty fashion heavy as well. I would say like throwing in a fashion reel that's like a brand deal actually aligns so well with my normal content that it doesn't come off nearly as ad focused as like maybe a vitamin or or something super random. So it's like you can do more brand deals if they're really well integrated into the type of content that your audience already really wants to see. I think I told you the story of I was trying to explain to my kids what I do for a living and what impact.com does as a platform. And I came across your full face makeup with uh, Glossier, your partnership with them. And it's like a 14 minute video on how you apply the makeup and you're really giving your genuine review or comments about what you like, what you don't like, but, but more importantly, showing your audience, like how you apply the makeup. And it's like fascinating. It's engaging, right? For that target audience. Is that even for you, Dave? Really engaging? Even for me. Yeah. It's like, it, well, I'm trying to explain in a, in a way that my kids don't understand. There's two, two daughters and it just makes sense. That sort of content where it's a 14 minute video, it's mostly Glossier products. I think there's some other products that you mix in there. That's an example of what I would call like just branded content or, or commerce content. It's not just lifestyle content. Is the type of content that you publish, is it mostly about products? Or if you had to allocate 100%, what is, what is the mix of just your lifestyle versus specifically like content about brands where you're talking about products versus just life? My content just in general is, especially on YouTube, is very review focused. Even if it's not sponsored, I just, I love reviewing things, whether that's like a hair care product or a nail polish or skincare, whatever. I just really enjoy reviewing things and giving my opinion on the fit and the feel and all that stuff. I feel like my branded content is the same thing as a lot of my non-sponsored content. So at least on that platform, there's not nearly as much lifestyle stuff as I would say Instagram. Instagram is way more whatever's going on in the middle of the day or just in real time what's happening. So that that platform to me feels very much more lifestyle. I do include some vlogs on YouTube, which are more lifestyle focused. So I think those would categorize in that. But for the most part, YouTube for me, at least, I try to focus on what videos are really helpful or informative. That's where my content lies. Um, and then, yeah, for Instagram, it's more like, what am I doing? What's up? So, yeah. I just love how you didn't take the bait that I put out there about like maybe feeling bad that more of your content isn't uh, lifestyle oriented. I think what I heard you clearly say is that, hey, look, a lot of the content that I publish is about reviewing things. And I think that has been the trend is, in my uh, opinion, you know, the latest research I saw from Porsche, there's 27 points of research that people are doing before they're buying stuff and they're finding content like what you're putting out there. If you hear about something, you're in the market to buy something, the first thing people do now is get online to see what other people are saying about it. I think what you're doing is exactly what people expect to see now is a lot of content about products out there. And that, that does seem to be your main focus as opposed to like entertainment or just lightweight lifestyle sort of content. I've always just utilized YouTube for myself personally as a search engine to find information on something I was interested in buying or something that I was interested in trying. And so I think just naturally, because I've always used YouTube in that sense, that's how I've utilized YouTube for my content. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, let's uh, maybe shift gears a little bit and talk about the basics of setting up a brand partnership. How would you prefer uh, to be approached by a brand and how would you 
you know, typically like to collaborate with them? I love great communication. <laughs> I love a brand that just tells me what they want, when they want it. If they can provide any sort of information about budget, that would be really helpful. A lot of times they won't, which is, it's normal. We go back and forth, but I love just like clear communication, great, like fast responses, just like any business. You want someone who can communicate well and tell you exactly what they want up front and not spur something on you at the last minute or anything like that. So communication, it's all about communication. I always recommend also that brands go direct to their partners like you to drive the most innovation in that partnership. I think it creates the most value for both sides, builds a deeper you know, relationship. In that vein, can you give an example maybe of a successful partnership that you've worked on that you've really enjoyed? Yeah, I mean, any of the long-term partnerships that I have are have always been through like in-house, like you said, brand going directly to me. And I love that. I'm really big on relationship and also the fact that they can get on a call with me and I can hear the tone of their voice and we can have a, like a face-to-face conversation over Zoom. That's really meaningful to me because it becomes less, like you said, transactional and more about the relationship and the long, the longevity of the relationship. And so I definitely prefer having that contact with the brand to where if there, if something comes up, they know my heart. We've worked together long enough. We've talked about it. And there's not like that middleman that kind of makes it feel very faceless, I guess. Yep. Yep. And any examples of mistakes maybe that brands have made when approaching you? Is there anything that kind of comes to mind along those lines? I definitely think there are things that brands aren't aware of as far as like how influencers want to be compensated or maybe they want a super quick turnaround that is like literally impossible. They'll be like, we want you to post this on Monday. And I'm like, it's Thursday and I don't have the products. Like there are things like that are definitely more frustrating. I don't know that I would call them like mistakes. I think that's more just, there's a lot of times that brands will put things on the influencer or on the creator that are just really challenging, like timelines and stuff like that, where it's on us to deliver that on time. Even if they didn't reach out till two days before, it still falls on us. So things like that, I definitely am like, we could work on that for sure. I think it's the newness, honestly, of the channel. You have to imagine a lot of brands are used to putting a dollar into the Google machine and getting a click back. You put a million dollars in, you get a million clicks back. And it's like that immediate. I think this channel is unique in that, just like you said, like you haven't even gotten the product yet. You haven't had a chance to try it out, like to give your kind of a review. So there is a bit of a different flow and a different motion, I think, to getting a partnership up and running to get somebody to get behind your product and review it. It's just different, I think. And I think there's probably a period of time where we need to just get used to the uniqueness of the channel for brands to set different expectations potentially. Yeah, I think that's a really good thing to note that yeah, we aren't just like Google ads. It doesn't happen immediately. There's a whole, we have to receive the product. We have to possibly steam the product or try the product. We have to then film it, then edit it. Then we have to send the drafts and then we have to wait for the drafts to be approved and then we can go live. But if that all has to happen between a Thursday and a Monday, they're out of office. We should be able to be allowed to have a weekend, right? You know, like I think there's a human aspect to it that like you said, brands aren't super 
used to. They're probably used to like agencies being able to turn stuff around. There's a whole team. A lot of times with us, it's just us. Like we're the filmer, we're the editor, we're the administrator, we're the finance team, we're all of it. And I think that's what's so cool about it is you're getting something so unique and so specific to the creator that you're hiring. And in that way, it feels really genuine and it feels really authentic. But at the same time, because we are real people who have a real life and real limitations and what we can do. Yeah. There doesn't, there needs to be a little bit more flexibility on the brand side. For sure. Yeah. That's yeah. That's I mean. a great message that I hope a lot of brands hear in this podcast right there. I, I appreciate you voicing that. And as we're getting into the numbers here a little bit, it might be good to share some context with the audience here about maybe starting with the number of brands that you work with on average. Yeah. I think there's probably like four to six that I work with continually throughout the year, just either every month or every other month or just more continually. And then there's probably like three or four new brands a month. And that's, like I said, on a more busy month, it's very seasonal work. So usually the summer is pretty slow because we just got through spring and all the new, at least with fashion, I'll say with fashion, like all the new spring arrivals and spring's a really big push. There's a lot of brand deals around spring. And then in the summer, things slow down. People are on vacation. They want to see different types of content. They're not necessarily wanting to buy a lot of summer clothes at that point because they already bought them in the spring. And so then stuff will slow down there. Um, And I'll probably work with four to five brands in the month, in the summer months. And then holiday will pick up. Fall and holiday was huge just because fall clothes, winter clothes, all that stuff. And then obviously the big push for Christmas gifts and all that stuff. So um, it definitely like fluctuates, I would say between four on a low month and then maybe eight to 10, maybe in the super busy months. But again, those are very specific times that those are really high. Yeah. Got it. You mentioned earlier that you don't like to post uh, too many brand deals in a short time frame. How many sponsored posts are you creating typically in a month? Would you guess? Because I do have multiple platforms, that is helpful. So I'm not super heavy on one and not the other. I can spread them out between the two. And they're also are on very different schedules between YouTube and Instagram posts. Honestly, June was really busy for me, which I'm always really excited about that. I'm like, it's great if it's like a good month like that. So I think in June, it was more around eight, I think, eight brand deals that I did. Cool. And you mentioned platforms a few times, YouTube and Instagram so far. Let's just talk about that for a quick second, like the platforms themselves. So the in the mix, like if you had to put a percent allocation, YouTube versus Instagram, or is it you generally publishing a version of the same content to, to both platforms at the same time? I would say that my content crosses over a little bit. So definitely the stuff that I do on YouTube, I do like to repurpose for Instagram. I do feel like I'm putting the work in to film a 30 minute video. I might as well break it up, throw it on Instagram and hit that audience as well. Um, And then I also really like to send people from YouTube to my blog. So if it is a, like a affiliate heavy video. So like it's a clothing haul. There's a lot of pieces, a lot of outfits. I like to send them to the blog for the ease of shopping, just because the blog is way more visual. They can actually see the outfits and then they can see each individual piece, the photo of the piece versus digging through a description box and trying to find the link that corresponded to outfit 19. Like that is so 
so tiring because I've tried to do that. I've tried to look through someone's lookbook and been like, was that outfit 14 or 13? And where is that in this description box? So I just try to make it really easy for people if they're interested in any of the outfits to just go ahead and send them to the blog post where they can visually shop the outfits. And then, like I said, for Instagram, a lot of Instagram content is repurposed from YouTube, but also with Instagram, because it is so real time, I'm able to have way less edited stuff on there. Stuff that's just very in the moment, feels very more like lifestyle, casual that goes on Instagram. What I haven't heard you mention much of is TikTok or Pinterest. How do you think of those other platforms? I love Pinterest, actually. I utilize Pinterest a lot just for me personally. I think Pinterest is a really great platform to grab ideas. And I've actually, I know a few people who do really well on Pinterest. What's crazy about Pinterest is like a YouTube video or, or, or a blog, you'll have 20% of your content on Pinterest pulling 80% of your revenue. But I've seen the people who've been able to do that on Pinterest do it really well. And a lot of times the people who can do that really well on Pinterest are either like chefs or people who do a lot of food recipes on there or home decor. I have a little bit of traction on there. I think I have 600,000 impressions a month or something. Like it's not like crazy or anything like that, but there's enough to where like it feeds the blog a little bit. Um, and then TikTok, Dave, <laughs> every time we talk about TikTok, I personally just don't connect with TikTok. I think it's incredible what they have been able to accomplish the algorithm, being able to target people so specifically. I think the only thing with TikTok that I, as a creator, just I don't really resonate with is that TikTok feels like it's really serving the algorithm and not the creator. And at least from what I've seen in the way that people consume TikTok is that there, there are certain creators that people who are on TikTok are like, I love this person. But those are usually the ones that have gone viral and are huge. There's not a lot of space on TikTok, I feel like, for these middle creators, like the middle tier, like where I would consider myself on Instagram. Um, I'm not like a huge million follower creator. And so I feel like Instagram still is a place where I can have a space where people who follow me can see my stuff. Whereas I feel like on TikTok, if you're not in the viral creator space, then you're just a 15 second video that someone's swiping through that they're never going to see again. And I think as far as if you're an entertaining creator, I think that's the place to be. Honestly, it's exactly where I feel like that you thrive there. But I wouldn't really consider myself an entertainer. I would consider myself more a reviewer or, or just like a lifestyle creator. So for me personally, I don't find a lot of great feedback on TikTok. So. It does seem like each major social platform has its own content style, right? And you said it yourself, like the content that you like to publish is you're doing longer form, in-depth reviews. That stuff is searchable for years. And it's no surprise, I think, that YouTube does seem like your primary platform. What else is it about YouTube that makes it such a great publishing platform for a creator like yourself? I personally love YouTube for so many reasons. <laughs> One, I grew up just, that was my favorite thing to watch YouTube videos. I love the long format. I think being a creator, you really get to connect with your audience. And even if you are like a product review channel or your focus isn't so much lifestyle, it's more hauls and stuff like that. Even there, you get to really share more opinions and more of your style and they just get a better sense of who you are, I think, with the video like that. 
I mean, if you think about it, they're sitting down to watch a 15, 20 minute, 30 minute, 45 minute vlog. And that is so much more valuable than a 15 second Instagram story that they're just like clicking through. They don't even really know what they're watching. It's on mute. They don't know what you're doing. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like with YouTube, it's like, even when I'm watching YouTube video or I'm watching my husband watch a YouTube video, we're grabbing a snack, we're sitting down, we're watching, we're engaged. We want to know what they're doing. Yeah, and you're learning. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, or you're learning, math. being educated okay. or, yeah. So I think there's just a lot more connection through YouTube. And then just from the creator's standpoint, like I said, with my affiliates, I feel like I've really been able to unlock that because of YouTube, because YouTube is such a search engine and because those videos are just evergreen. They're always going to be there. I'm able to make money off a video that I made four years ago. And that's something that you just can't really accomplish on an Instagram story that disappears in 24 hours. It's about as a creator and the longevity of your career, finding something that you actually enjoy. Because if I was only forced to do TikToks, I would probably just find something else to do because I just, I'm not passionate about that. And so that's why I love my blog. I love my YouTube channel. And it's something that I am actually just excited to create for as well. I'd love to dovetail that difference that you just pointed out between the platforms with contracts that you have with brands, because what I'm seeing is the TikTok uh, relationship that I would imagine creators have might be just a flash type of thing in and out and gone just because the content doesn't survive. So it's probably a more of a short-term fixed fee, but just considering the longevity of a lot of the content that you publish on YouTube, could you talk a little bit about the structure of your contracts with brands? How much of it is fixed? How much of it is a commission on a sale, short-term versus long-term, that sort of thing? I would say that brands that really are focused on sales, sale-driven campaigns are, I've noticed have always been through YouTube. I'm starting to see now that Instagram campaigns are starting to be a little bit more ROI driven. They're wanting to see more sales. They're wanting to see more return. That's hard though, because we only have a 24 hour link. And to me, that is a little bit, uh, I know you really want sales, but like 24 hours, really, you're going to make me report how well it did with that short of a window. Whereas like with YouTube brands are like, we want to see how it performs in seven days or a month because they're able to look at the sales through specific links like affiliate links to track those sales for an extended amount of time. They could even look at the sales that I did a year ago and go, oh, wow, in the last 365 days, you've sold this because they're able to track that through a YouTube video that is always there and always live. So I think like a lot of times brand deals on YouTube will include affiliate, but it's not solely affiliate usually. Like usually there's a fixed fee, like any brand deal. And then they'll say, and we'll also give you 10% commission on your sales or they won't. And we will negotiate that if that's something that I'm like really wanting. Yeah. I've been recently referring to that as a post plus sort of compensation model. We'll pay you to post plus a commission on sales that come from that over the long term. And I think like with any contract negotiation, you just have to find that sweet spot where, you know, if the fixed fee is lower, you can sell it and make up for the rest in your rate that you would normally get. Then sometimes I'll take deals lower knowing that I can sell. If it's a brand that I'm really passionate about, I know will be something that my audience is really interested in, then there's flexibility in that or just the cherry on top. Like I get my rate, we're in really good standing with the brand and we sell really well. That's always like 
the dream collaboration, obviously. Yep. Okay. And as we wrap, I just love to hear about any trends that we should be paying attention to right now. What's next for creators? I think just where we're headed right now is where it's been going for a while, at least from what I've seen from 2020. It's authenticity. It's people who are normal, everyday creators. I think we obviously will always be obsessed with the celebrity creator or the person that lives the life that we could literally never achieve. But I think that we're moving to that desire of following creators who are actually really similar to us. I've seen a huge growth in like the smaller creator space, like creators who are making insanely good content, but who also work day jobs. I, I think the creator space isn't just for the mega influencers or the people with millions of followers who are living luxurious lifestyles. I feel like it's starting to be a thing where you can be a mom and also be like a creator who's making extra income for their family, or you can work a nine to five and also be an incredible creator who's going to events. Like, I feel like the creator space is just opening up to everyone now. And that's really exciting. Yeah. Opening up to more relatable creators as opposed to everyone being such an aspirational sort of creator, yeah. Yeah, that, that celebrity sort of lifestyle that you may never achieve. I, I agree with that. Thank you, Chloe. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Thanks, Dave, for having me. I hope to be back very soon. There are a lot of great insights that I took away from this conversation, from both a brand's point of view and a creator's point of view. As Chloe and I discussed, it's important to remember that creators are real people and not another form of Google Ads. When forming a creator partnership, brands have to focus on strong communication and relationship building strategies to really see success. It was also fascinating to hear about how each social media platform is best suited for a certain type of creator and business outcome. Chloe is a huge fan of YouTube because it gives her audience a chance to really connect with her through longer form videos. When someone sits down to watch one of her YouTube videos, they're investing their time in getting to know her better. She also loves having the ability to link products in the description box and the fact that YouTube acts as a search engine. For these reasons, Chloe has seen success in utilizing YouTube to drive product sales. Instagram, on the other hand, is best suited for lifestyle creators and brand awareness goals. Users are not necessarily looking to spend a lot of time scrolling or searching on Instagram, but they are paying attention to the brands and trends they discover. And finally, for the newest explosive platform, TikTok, Chloe recommends it for creators who have a highly entertaining content style and for brands who are, again, looking to increase brand awareness. Given that creators are not able to easily post links on TikTok, the focus is on achieving virality as opposed to pushing product and driving sales. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thank you, Chloe, for joining us on the Partnership Economy podcast, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to the Partnership Economy brought to you by Impact.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to the show and rate and review it on Apple Podcasts.